Hello, hello, listeners and King fans. This is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King, a book podcast that grabs with both hands for more of the literary superiority of Mr. Stephen King. Welcome to the show, everyone. It is so great to be with you on this fine day where Kim C is back to her happy place, which is a Stephen King short story collection. And this one is the deliciously layered carnival of creepy, beautifully written delights, 2015's The Bazaar of Bad Dreams. So last month I dipped my toes into the water of a little place called Gilead and met a guy named Roland Deshane who was mighty intriguing with my very first read-through of The Dark Tower uh, of The Gunslinger and while I super enjoyed the ride, especially the last half, oh my god, the last half of The Gunslinger was amazing. Oh, my friends, that entire experience was quite a trek into the wilderness for me reading-wise, especially concerning King. And although I do plan to crack open the second novel of the Dark Tower experience, Drawing of the Three, that's coming up in the next few weeks, I must say, after Gunslinger, it kind of felt like when you were younger and maybe a mean older cousin of yours just grabbed you and threw you into the deep end of the pool without your floaties on and there's that terrifying realization that you can't touch the bottom with your toes and I kind of felt something like that. (laughs) I felt like I was uh, thrashing and freaking out a bit because that novel was so unique. The All of it was so incredibly foreign, and I have so many questions that, uh, let's just say the bottomless depths of the tower made me quickly doggy paddle to the edge, and, uh, right after I finished Gunslinger, I was like, okay, let's, uh, let's get our bearings, let's breathe, let's get back on solid ground a bit, uh, time for a short story collection that will fix everything! and it has. So consider this short story collection my post-panic self-soothing after the cliff drop into King's genre-bending masterpiece that definitely felt like my brain got abducted by aliens after I finished. Uh, Not gonna lie, I felt a smidge lobotomized (laughs) after trying to conceptualize the immensity of the tower. But don't worry, no one fret, I'm heading back to the trail with Roland. We just gotta baby step it a little bit as I'm not quite used to the heavy weights of fantasy, science fiction, those are (laughs) very foreign delights for my reading palette, so give Kim C a little slack as I wobble my way there. But today is all about getting comfy, taking a breather after I tried something new. I fully intend on having more bites of it soon, but for today, let's get back to business. I am thrilled to talk about this collection with you guys because I, sadly, don't really hear it mentioned very much at 
all super tragic. I every now and again hear a story or two from this collection pulled and discussed, but never the compilation as a whole. And folks, that has got to change. We gotta do something because we have gold in this gathering of stories, my friends. It is so good. It's so good that I found myself almost after every time I finished a story, out of my mouth, audibly, the phrase, that was so good. That was such a good story. That was so good. Every single time. And if I didn't actually verbatim verbalize that, it was something that was either, oh, that's unique. I love what he did there. And I don't know why, but this time reading the collection, I found myself getting super into these stories in a really nerdy way, uh, mostly because for me, King was pulling out some endings that <laughs> kind of made me feel like I was watching a prize fight. If you just imagine two boxers and you hear like the gloves and the rhythm and I was like, yeah, yeah, get him, jab, jab, like super nerd alert guys for sure. But Sometimes when you are reading King and he is just bringing it, like bringing the literary fire, bringing the power, it's very much like watching your favorite athlete make a great play. I mean, I know that's, it's a stretch, it's a comparison, but for me, when King is performing with a capital P, when he's working his way through a zinger, and you guys know those zingers, there's a bit of celebration of, of getting to be a part of that, you know, this really powerful delivery of this short, power-packed little chunk of writing, and I was majorly hyped. I was really getting into it. The, the nerdery was epic, guys. It was, uh, <laughs> it was a sight. So this was actually a reread for me as I was gifted The Bazaar of Bad Dreams in hardcover for Christmas. Thank you to Santa for hooking me up with one of the best Christmas presents you can get and constant readers know what I'm talking about. A hardcover king book uh, un unwrapped on Christmas morning is quite nice. Um, or uh, any other winter holiday, uh, or paperback king, we do not discriminate here, <laughs> but um, king, king at, at uh, winter holidays are my absolute favorite. But I do remember working my way through the book in early 2016, so it's been about five years since I've spent some time with these stories. And while I remembered a few little bits and pieces in regards to the plots of some of the larger stories, for the most part, I forgot everything. I really just forgot mostly all of them. And so, oh, what a treat it was to go back and feel really like I was reading them for the very first time. And even more exciting, the stories I remembered not really caring for or perhaps not giving as much attention to, this time around, I was swooning. For example, we have a super duper baseball saturated 1950s sports colloquial 
completely macho male immersion curveball ending crazy fest called Blockade Billy. And five years ago, I remember vividly losing interest rather quickly because it was such a sports heavy story. And even though I am familiar with the sport of baseball and I know exactly what they're talking about, it was very darkly masculine to, to the point of alienating. And uh, I don't, I don't know if darkly masculine is the right phrase for that, uh, other than like sometimes King can create a kind of hostile environment with certain uh, characters, especially as a female right, reader, not genderizing it too much, but there are some times when like some dirty old men are in a clustered corner together or I don't know. Sometimes he brings out the worst in them. Great character writing, but as we all know, he's so good, it can be off-putting. <laughs> off-settling. I don't think that's a word, but slightly off-putting, uh, a little bit repelling. But anyway, that tale five years ago completely made me glaze over. I was really anxious for it to be over. Not really into it. And this time, guys, holy crap. Loved the hell out of it. Absolutely loved King's use of language and how honestly, this might be a stretch, but I'm curious what you guys think. There are tiny little breadcrumbs within Blockade Billy that made me think of The Outsider little bit, as well as if you guys read last year's novella collection, If It Bleeds, the secondary Holly Gibney standalone tale uh, titled If It Bleeds, I also got vibes from that. Uh, so if you are a fan of those stories and maybe interested in baseball, if you're kind of not a fan or if you're a super fan of baseball, no matter what, you have to read blockade billy if you haven't you gotta make it happen uh we're gonna talk more about that coming up in this episode but there are some sparkling diamonds in this collection my friends and i really really wish more king readers were chatting about this title so for those of you who are new to the podcast, really quick, gotta highlight, because short story collections are, <laughs> let's just say I love them a little more than the average bear. So I feel it important to announce that I am an individual who is massively passionate toward the practice of creative writing. It's something I'm employed to teach. I'm always looking at it, thinking about it, tinkering with it. And one of the reasons why I started the podcast is because I felt so deeply in love with King's writing and it was the stories that did not get a lot of attention that gave me the burning desire to chat about them and get more people, especially those who've never read King, uh, many literary folk in my personal life who just always turn their nose up at genre writers. I wanted them to engage with these stories as well as learn more from other constant readers who absolutely have me schooled in what it is to be a fan of this writer. But when I was discovering King, the short stories were some of my most favorite aspects of this author, guys. And for those of you who haven't heard my Full Dark No Stars episode part one, uh, in that episode I talk about how 
Full Dark No Stars, a novella collection, was my very first King title at the age of 26. I was fresh from grad school, a total lit snob, really cranky, <laughs> really burnt out, but the shorter King Tales ended up being the carrot he dangled in front of me, and I followed it off a cliff, or rather into a deep well, snaps to my 1922 fans out there. But I must forewarn that Short Story King is where Kim C's love burns the brightest because I feel in the short form, we're really viewing King for the prolific genius he is, guys. It's here in these short little snippets and vignettes where he's testing himself. He's playing a chess game with himself. He's mimicking authorial voices and styles he admires, which that's something King does a lot. And I think this is a great thing because it shines a light on other masters whose novels still need to be read and discussed and maintain cultural relevance and timelessness and masterpiece level stuff. But here, guys, the short form is where King is intimately closer to the reader as there is usually a note before or after the story where he talks about what inspired it, where he was, who was involved, what his thought process was. So it's a much more private and personal space and I feel most connected to the magic of King's writing with the novella collections and the short story compilations. So I thought I would <laughs> preface that if you're listening to this episode and I sound potentially uh, giddier than normal or uh, perhaps a little hyper, uh, yeah, just a forewarning, uh, this is this is where the nerd card fully comes out and this is where my swooning truly happens. Ergo, in order to squeeze all the sweet juice out of this title, this is going to be a two-part episode, my friends, as we have 20 total stories in The Bizarre of Bad Dreams, and when I saw that, I thought, perfect, this is perfection, we've got two episodes, 10 and 10, and that way, I get to steep in this hot water a little longer. I can read more excerpts from the text. I can really enjoy and further discuss these amazing stories and make sure they're given proper spotlight and discussion time as I think giving a tiny morsel of chat for all 20 at once would not be fun. I would not enjoy. It would make me very sad um, because the short stories are my favorite, favorite, favorite. And yes, we're gonna take our time. <laughs> so regarding short stories in general, I kind of want to segue a little bit about the publishing world. So I'm not sure if many are aware of this, but when it comes to publishing, it's pretty common knowledge in the writing world that uh, if a writer wants to eat, uh, he or she best bet uh, on going for the long story form so they get a bigger paycheck. Uh, so for those constant readers out there, we know a little bit about Early King because that guy, Early Steve, was churning out short stories left and right because he was literally writing because the rent was due. He was writing to keep the lights on, put food on the table, and his incredible talent and ability to get 
a few things churned out quickly and turned into men's magazines kept he and his family going until publishing Carrie uh, when they went straight to the bank with some life-changing money. So because of the monetary reasons, many writers cut their teeth with short stories, but do not return to the form once they start writing novels and making a living. Those who do return to the short story form usually want to do something with the craft. They want to wrestle with the concept of brevity and limited space and tone and form and point of view and voice. They want to experiment, guys, like total mad scientists. They want to say it quick, say it different, imitate a style, but also make it hit hard to the reader, be memorable. And for me, friends, and I hope for you, the short story form is where we see genius come forth. So the other unique thing about short story collections, we're almost done with this little tangent, but uh, the other unique thing about short story collections is not a lot of publishers want to publish a collection of them unless they're interconnected, much like what King did with Hearts in Atlantis, which if you guys haven't read that one, please tiptoe back there and give it a go, melancholy and lovely. Uh, but in Hearts in Atlantis, lots of those characters were interconnected, the characters bled through and left their mark and kind of echo throughout the adjacent tales. Publishers love that. They'll happily make sure they, uh, they head that direction. Or if it's one story, they will absolutely get that in print. They'll get one in the magazine, but a pack of them? Not so much. A pack of random stories? That's a really tall order. When they're interconnected, they are easier to market, but when you have a book of randomness, unless you're a big name success, like a Lovecraft, a Bradbury, a Neil Gaiman, those guys also have a genre umbrella on their side. King kind of does as well, but he's, in my opinion, way too big for that umbrella. It's just too small for him. He transcends all labels. Anyway, back on track. But uh, if you are interested in the writing world, in getting something published, unless there's been a, a massive shift in the time since I finished school, uh, what they told us back in the day is good luck getting a publisher to give you the time of day unless you're megawatt famous or already have a lot of published works under your belt if you want to publish a pack of random stories. Which is why, my dears, we should tip our hat to Mr. King for keeping not only the practice of short story alive, but a pack of random short stories alive and the joy of having a mixed box of chocolates to sift through. All right, enough rambling. I have done a lot thus far, but for this episode, we're going to examine what's unique about the Bizarre of Bad Dreams, as well as the themes I'm seeing in this collection. We're going to talk about how, for me, the title really, really reflects what he's trying to accomplish in these stories, which is kind of unique uh, given the collections I've already covered on the pod thus far. So we are going to have the first 10 stories in Spotlight. I'm going 
going to highlight my favorites and share some of the uh, awesome lines that I loved and gravitated to, as well as talk about some of the stories that I have some questions about. Um, because at least regarding this first 10, there wasn't really any that I hated or lost interest in. We have a lot of strength here, guys. A lot of cool and thought-provoking stuff. So to kick off this nearly 500 page collection, I'm going to read the titles of the 10 stories we're going to explore in this episode, as well as a really quick one-two sentence descriptor, so it might jog your memory if you've previously read this collection, or the other hope is that it might get you interested so you could score a copy of this collection ASAP and dive in. So I haven't done this in the previous short story episodes I've covered thus far, so this is experiment time. We're going to see if we like it. So feel free to let me know if you prefer mystery stories or these little teasers coming up. I'm all ears. Let's start with number one. First story mile 81 calling all christine fans we have a mysterious mud-covered station wagon that has pulled itself into an abandoned rest stop off a rural main back road number two premium harmony Ray and Mary have been married 10 years and take a drive to the quick pick on a hot summer day. Ray hopes Mary will grab him some cigarettes, but he gets much more than he wanted. Number three, Batman and Robin have an altercation. Dougie Sanderson is a 60 year old eldest son, good guy, takes his 83 year old nursing home residing father out for lunch. On their way home, a road rage encounter makes hero and vigilante out of many. Number four, The Dune. <laughs> I love this one. Okay, guys, this is a 12-page power hitter where 80-year-old and then some retired Judge Beecher has paddled out to a small island dune not far from his home nearly every day of his life. There is something written in the sand that compels him to continue returning. Number five, Bad Little Kid. George Hallis is about to face the death, or pardon me, George Hallis is about to face death by lethal injection for an unspeakable crime. He recounts the tale to his counselor, Leonard Bradley, of the bad little kid who made him pull the trigger. Number six, a death. The sheriff and his men come on horseback through the cold Nebraska wind for Jim Truesdale, the only suspect for the murder of young Rebecca Klein. Number seven, The Bone Church. A poem, a sea shanty, the pain of war, the pain of too much drink. Number eight, Morality. Married couple Chad and Nora are comfortably are comfortable financially until Nora is offered an amount of money she can't refuse in exchange for an odd request that seems harmless enough until it's done. Number 9, Afterlife. William Andrews is dead and he's in a waiting room where a cranky messenger gives him a few options in terms of the great beyond. Number 10, you are. 
or er, I think it's er, pardon me, it's not an acronym. Er, number 10, er. Wesley received a package from Amazon, a new Kindle, but this one is pink, hot pink, and very informative about the future, the past, and other worlds than these. All right, friends, I hope that wets the palate a little bit. I'm getting excited just thinking about the twists and turns and gorgeous prose and super punchy endings we have with a few of these. Our next section will explore what's unique, strong themes, reoccurring motifs, and we might have to have a heart-to-heart chat about uh, perhaps uh, some areas where Mr. King might have overdone it just a little bit, might have over-described just a dad. But let's head into the night market, my friends, where Mr. King has a blanket of wares to sell us, but there is no telling if we'll sleep soundly after we've purchased. I'll see you in the next section. Alright guys, thank you for joining me as we delve into some of the reasons why The Bazaar of Bad Dreams totally rules and needs more readers, as well as a talk of a king topic that a few of us constant readers might have a few ideas about, maybe some thoughts about it. Um, And with this collection, I was compelled to say something. More on that in a little bit. But if you guys listened to my previous episode, I had a really amazing conversation with author Jason Pellegrini, and I mentioned how I was finishing up The Bizarre of Bad Dreams. Um, And after we finished recording, I told him I was working on the story collection and he tells me that The Bazaar of Bad Dreams was one of the only King books he did not finish. And much to my horror, I was absolutely shocked, but he talked about it and said he kind of really wasn't sure why. He didn't know if perhaps he just isn't a King short story fan or if there was something particular about this volume that lost him. But I was very intrigued and wanted to explore that a little bit because this particular title, friends, I never hear a lot of King fans talk about or even bring it up. And I, I'm so confused by that because I think it's tremendous. And not only do I think it's tremendous, but I think it's an excellent volume for a first time King reader to have on their menu. And I am happy to debate peacefully with anyone on this because I really do think there is something here, guys. And I know the majority of constant readers out there swear on a stack of Bibles that the best introduction to Stephen King might be the short story collection Night 
shift as that for the most part for uh, in my knowledge it channels that spooky classic 80s horror king however I can't say that for sure myself because I haven't read that one please don't crucify me I fully intend to but uh, as mentioned, this is the underrated Stephen King podcast, and so we focus on the underrated titles of King a little bit more than the ones in the big old spotlight, and Night Shift is always in the spotlight, guys. It just is. Um, and so I have zero doubts that Night Shift is tremendous and so huge, but guys, this one, The Bazaar of Bad Dreams, in my heart, this is a real contender as a great first read for a brand new King reader, and I'm going to explain why in greater detail. But for now, let's kick off the bullet points I have on why I'm loving these first 10 stories so much, but more so why all 20 of these stories are so incredible and totally badass. So point number one, close to theme. So if you've listened to the podcast a little bit, if you've dabbled and clicked around, we've covered several novella collections on this podcast, as well as two previous short story collections. I adore novella collections, as you guys uh, have probably heard thus far, um, but the short story collections are also incredibly close to my heart. The first one we did was 2002's Everything's Eventual, which has some absolute red hot gems in there, guys. Super spooky ones, as well as um, 2008's Just After Sunset, which that collection also full of diamonds. Uh, that one in general is a little bit more of a mixed bag with strong stories, but I felt there was concerning specifically just after sunset much more of a melancholy vibe and um all around uh, the the general string of the stories was just really soaked in melancholy and um yeah more on that in a little bit but in both collections, if we look at 2002's Everything's Eventual and 2008's Just After Sunset, both collections seem to be hopscotching around a little bit, um, and there didn't seem to be as strong of a supposed theme than we may have hoped or assumed. Um, and I think because of this is what we see in a lot of King works is sometimes when King gets a short story collection moving, they he grabs stories and they very much, when they're stacked together, appear like random beads on a charm bracelet. And if you guys are familiar um, with charm bracelets, of course, I think we all are, um, but they might be named different things in different countries, I don't know. Um, but charm bracelets are charming. <laughs> My god, that was so stupid, but forgive me. Um, the, the charm of charm bracelets is that we have unique beads, unique little doodads and baubles. They don't go together, but when they're all together on a set piece of jewelry, it works. And that's how these Stephen King story collections are. Um, they're often written years apart. 
There are several one-shots, oftentimes King's experimenting quite a bit or he's reading a particular author and wants to emulate his or her style. Um, so they, they kind of lovably are a delightful mixed bag of marbles and other uh, odd items and that's what makes them so exciting, beguiling, curious, and uh, they're always enjoyable to read. Oh, so concerning this one, um, you know, the it's it's so different in that uh, we're actually following the train tracks, guys. So the instead of the one shots and the experiments, of course, you know, not negating any of the previous short story collections. I adore them. I, I do. Um, but side by side, they are disjointed. They they're a little kind of all over the place. They're hopscotching here and there. And um, in my past two episodes of Everything's Eventual and Just After Sunset, it was a little bit of a stretch for me to try to find a, the correlating thread that tied them all together. Oftentimes I would connect one or two stories together and kind of find an overall theme or an overall vibe or what I believed he might have been channeling, but for the most part it was a little bit of a stretch, it was a little bit of a hunt. But today, ladies and gentlemen, concerning the bizarre of bad dreams, friends, we stay so close to theme. And it is refreshing, guys. It is a really exciting, refreshing, enjoyable uh, sight to see when you're making your way through these stories and you're like, oh my god, every single one is ticking the box. And I have two boxes in particular that I feel are the two strongest themes that King is exploring in the Bazaar of Bad Dreams. And the two zones, the two boxes that are absolutely being checked left and right, first one is channeling the nightmare. Okay guys, so for whatever reason, many of these stories have what I like to call the nightmare factor in which if you can imagine the nature of dreams for a minute, um, sometimes, most times, uh, this is just, you know, I know that everyone's dreams are different, but for the most part, I think we're all uh, on the same wavelength when it comes to human dreaming, but nightmares in particular never start off as nightmares. There's, there's usually a very innocent beginning, almost always, a seemingly innocent opening, and then slowly but surely, really bizarre stuff starts to happen subtly here and there, one at a time, hardly ever does it really happen in a domino effect. But then, ultimately, and oftentimes quite suddenly, at least it can feel like that sometimes, we fall through the floor with something shocking or something really unnatural and disconcerting, and then all of a sudden, we're afraid and stuck on the gluey floor of our subconscious and we're just in it, guys. And I'm serious, friends. So many stories in the Bazaar of Bad Dreams have this nightmare quality to them where King sets up a seemingly innocent tale and he just 
gently eases the reader in a bit, tricking them ever so slightly, just really, really subtle trickery going on, um, in which you actually think the narrative may turn somber. You, you actually think it might be a sad tale, and then boom, the floor gives way and you're just falling and it's a terrifying drop. And me as the reader, I am loving it. And my guys, you know me. I am not a thrill seeker as I've talked about previously. I'm a huge Brady Cat. I'm not even really that big of a horror fan, but man, the way King manipulates the narrative to make the reader comfortable or make them think they know what they're getting themselves into. I just, oh guys, I think so many of the stories within this collection have that nightmare quality to them where it's slow, subtle, and then all of a sudden, in a flash, you drop. I just love it. And uh, if you've listened to my previous episode on Everything's Eventual, a good example of that is one of my favorite stories in that collection called LT's Theory of Pets. That story, my guys, is so awesome. It's such a favorite, and I believe, if I remember correctly, King even says it's one of his favorites to read out loud to a live audience because it has such a tonal shift that is a gut punch for the reader at the end. And that read in particular, that story, is definitely what I'm talking about when I'm discussing how King channels the nightmare. And it's it's that sudden cliff drop that's so surprising, enjoyable, but ultimately very scary, guys. And so in these 10 stories, our nightmare channels, at least for me looking back on them, um, the story Batman and Robin have an altercation, which is a very strange title, but it totally works once you read it. Uh, Premium Harmony, huge drop with that one. And The Dune, that one's, I think, one of my second favorites. Uh, we'll talk more about favorites here in just a bit. But these guys, they're subtle, almost sleepy little narratives that open up like the calmest little thing. The reader is completely unsuspecting, and by the time you reach the end, we have fallen through the floor. And very gripping, and I was just like, oh, has my heart loved till now? This is so good. This is just so exciting to see this narrative play with the reader and oh my gosh. So the other aspect to these stories that is right beside channeling the nightmare is channeling the doom avalanche. Yeah, (laughs) so whereas channeling the nightmare is the slow burn and then the drop off the cliff, the other really strong literary thread I've found in this collection is how King crafts the snowball early on. He alerts the reader to the conflict, to the need within the characters. It's seemingly innocent, it's seemingly not that big of a deal, and then he 
immediately kicks the snowball down the hill and it starts to roll. The plot is in place, the action is in motion, only what he does within these stories is make that little snowball turn into an avalanche of pure punishment. And it's fate and doom and tragic destiny barreling towards the reader. And at least by the middle of these stories, it's at a breakneck pace by the time you reach the end, guys. And oh, damn, it's just a burial of body crushing snow. And I know that description is rather dramatic, but I totally feel it's fitting, guys, truly. So some constant readers know what I'm talking about when I mention the doom avalanche, because I feel this is a very distinctive feature that's seen and felt throughout a lot of King's work. And raise the roof for you Doom King fans out there, my Doom Key people, you know what I'm talking about. You know it's all over that novel from start to finish, uh, as there is this omnipresent, omniscient presence of doom surrounding certain characters, or surrounding a whole town for that matter. And uh, we see this a lot in King's work, which it's very much like that Catch-22 motif of terrible fate. And all the reader can do is watch it build, 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 and then crash down and break everyone in sight. This is incredibly true to those readers of Under the Dome. If you recall yourselves reading Under the Dome, oh my god, the Doom Avalanche crashes down really hard with that one. But it crashes especially hard with the story's bad little kid, morality, er, and definitely a death, the story entitled A Death, which, if I have to mark a favorite out of these 10, more on these a little bit later, but I'm so obsessed with this one, guys, I think it's gonna have to be A Death. Um, in the next section, I'll nerd out a little bit more on why I'm absolutely obsessed, but I can't stop thinking about it, guys, and I think that's the mark of a favorite if it's constantly in your mind just going over in circles and circles and circles because that's what's happening. Um, but the Doom Avalanche, friends, is definitely something I gravitate more in King's work, more than the actual nightmare element because... The Doom Avalanche is a slower build, I think. I think most of it really happens at the end where we have the crash down. But also, there is something... <laughs> I don't know what this says about me. I don't know if it's like my inner literary sadist or something. But there is something terrible about watching the chess pieces getting moved on the board until everything is set up for destruction. Which, I mean, we all do it. That's kind of why we watch television. We want to see these characters and the fates they're going to suffer. And I think that's why so many of us are patient with shows that get slow in their seasons because we're just waiting to see the outcome in terms of the positioning of these pieces, specifically with villains. We always want to see the villain get their comeuppance. But as the reader concerning the Doom Avalanche, it's compelling to see King build only to obliterate. So more on that later, but these two elements, channeling the nightmare and channeling the doom avalanche for me, 
my friends, 100% those two elements are found in all 20 stories of this collection, which is why I'm so excited and I'm really encouraging new readers to give this a go and constant readers to give it another chance because I think the theme is so incredibly strong throughout, my friends. So strong. King even says, he even tells us, he gets us ready for it. So this is on page three of the introduction and he says, so here are the goods, my dear constant reader. Tonight, I'm selling a bit of everything. A monster that looks like a car, shades of Christine. A man who can kill you by writing your obituary. An e-reader that accesses parallel worlds. And that all-time favorite, the end of the human race. I like to sell this stuff when the rest of the vendors have long since gone home, when the streets are deserted and a cold rind of moon floats over the canyons of the city. That's what I like to that's when I like to spread my blanket and lay out my goods. That's enough talk. Perhaps you'd like to buy something now, yes? Everything you see is handcrafted, and while I love each and every item, I'm happy to sell them, because I made them especially for you. Feel free to examine them, but please be careful. The best of them have teeth. Oh, I love it so much. And he's so true to it, guys. He's so true. That introduction says it all. This is a collection worth celebrating for the fact that it is so close to theme. These tales are connected. They cohesively belong together. And that's really fun to see when you step back from these first 10. And I remember looking over the titles after I was halfway through and just seeing them side by side. I just kind of smiled and uh, I think audibly, I think I did say it out loud because I'm a huge nerd. And I just kind of held up my hands and said, this is working so well. Ooh! So I really feel like it is. So that's my uh, initial points on um, my nerding out fandom on this collection. And now, before we head into dissecting some of the stories and why they absolutely slay, and before I can lay some literary king fire on your laps, uh, well, okay. So we've got one pressing article of business I wanted to reach out to you guys about, and it's something that I'm having a hard time expressing in a non-crass way. So we're just going to go for it. We're just going to have radical acceptance here. But my last category in this section is simply titled, What the Heck is Going On with All the Scat? Okay, guys. So... I struggled with using the word scat because, you know, I could just say feces, shit, human excrement, etc. But scat, <laughs> um, in my research, my delicate research, um, it's utilized in a much more academic circle. It's also associated with actual clinical definitions, so there's that. But um, let's just say this topic is not entirely all by itself, as other King podcasts and King fans have brought this up and discussed it previously. So hopefully this isn't super foreign to any constant readers out there. But I need to talk about it with you guys because it's now become overly present in my mind. And uh, yeah, we, we have to explore it a little bit more. Uh, I did touch on it briefly 
on my second episode of If It Bleeds a few months back concerning Holly Gibney's starring performance in the title story If It Bleeds, uh, there was something that happened in that story with one of the characters involving scat and I got really upset. It made me so mad that I had to veer off and go on a huge tangent of why Mr. King makes certain narrative choices concerning the way characters, he makes them let loose their bowels, and there is always extensive commentary on how it smells and just general humiliation, lots of description about it, and boys and girls. So I bring this to you today because in this collection, unfortunately, in several of these stories, guys, we have human excrement everywhere. Everywhere, my guys. There is so much talk of shit that I was unable to ignore it. And I just, I had to pump the brakes a little bit. I just had to stop all the world and just stop and say, what is going on? Like, guys, what is going on with this? What is happening? Okay, okay. So, one thing some psychology academic friends of mine always told me, sage advice, they got some free therapy years ago. They said, Kim C., it's not your right to yuck anyone's yum. (laughs) And I took that to heart. I don't ever want to yuck anyone's yum. And I don't intend to shame anyone who places excrement from any species, for that matter, in high regard. But I bring this question to your doorstep today, friends, to maybe ask you why we, you, if anyone out there feels Steve does this in his narration, like if you've noticed it, is this just me? Um, or if anyone knows anything, like is has he been interviewed in the past or has he revealed a deep dark secret to a friend or something? Because throughout Stephen King novels, there are always, everywhere, graphic moments with characters, whether humiliating moments, comical ones, sad, and oftentimes just plain gross out moments. And human feces is always mentioned. It's always in the equation. And King always goes into detail. Always. Always. He mentions odor. He mentions how unpleasant it is for adjacent characters. And usually, feces is not by itself. Urine is always a part of it. Urine either they'll pee themselves first and then soon after they'll defecate themselves. But it's like... Okay, yeah, human shit is something he always seems to go out of his way to describe. And my hypothesis, and I may have said this in a previous episode, so forgive my redundancy, but my hypothesis is is this. So in creative writing, uh, we always encourage powerful description for sensory details like food, clothes, interior, anything involving the five senses, um, anything where the human mind can conjure taste, texture, scent, please do it. Do it to the max. Do it all over your story. 
And typically, at least in my classroom, I'm always encouraging my students to over-describe food all the time. I harp on them to tell me about the dinner table, what's on it, you know, how are they eating it? What what does it smell like? What does it feel like in their mouth? Um, is it hot? Is it cold? Is it slimy? Is it crunchy? Because food is is universal for the most part. People really enjoy consuming calories uh, in real life and on the page, but food descriptions. They're always great to have in abundance, and it also helps the writers really get to imagining. It really helps them imagine and create. And when I look at Steve's food descriptions, guys, if you think back to all the times Steve's characters are eating, sometimes they're really great. Like sometimes he'll describe a three course, like, you know, soup, main, dessert, and it's awesome. But for the most part, all of his characters are just eating some kind of beef. And I'm not sure if you guys have noticed, but if you do, please email me some page numbers if, if any of the characters are eating anything other than beef. But typically, in my observations, they're always having something with beef, either just ground hamburger, meatloaf, steak, just burgers, cheeseburgers. It's always beef in some form. And n there's not really many descriptions of the sides, whether there's like fries or potato salad or mashed potato or anything, you know, and unless we're really lucky, as I mentioned previously. And he sometimes will describe the whole dinner. But seriously, guys, take notice. King must be a number one cow fan because it's always beef. And the description is minimal of everything else. Very minimal with food. My point is, we have such minimal description for enjoyable things, enjoyable sensory details, but the mention of human feces, ho ho, the cornucopia of description we get, guys. Like, oh my god. Uh, so we just get so much and I I just have to mention it here guys I know that it's a bit of a tangent but I have to mention it here because in this particular collection I'm loving the hell out of it I'm obsessed I'm all about it but my guys he just throws us in the shit or rather the mention of shit gets thrown at us so many times in this collection and it stopped me in my tracks after I finished this title because I'm like, Steve, buddy, what is going on? Like, ah, you're making me contemplate things, friend. Like, you're making me contemplate things, beloved Stevie. Like, I am concerned <laughs> and pondering if there's a deep psychological fixation or a fetish and I don't want to think of him that way guys because the myth and the legend of King the it's always gonna outweigh the man the king king as a man for me even though I love and adore uh, mr. Steve King the human and citizen of Maine so much but for me his godlike writing ability is untouchable for me. He is legend for me. He is beyond. He's he's just he's beyond, guys. He's on the top tier pedestal for me in terms of heroes. And so uh, <laughs> because of this 
frequent mention of like fecal matter. I'm just wondering why there's so much of it in not only these stories, but all over his world. And I can't help but be led down the rabbit hole. And I don't wanna go down this rabbit hole, guys. I don't wanna go there because, you know. So for another example, for those of you who don't know, uh, director Quentin Tarantino is pretty upfront with the fact that he has a foot fetish. So this man is sexually attracted to feet. I'm not sure if it's feet in general, as in feet of all genders, or in particular women's feet, but throughout his films we have several blatant moments and scenes throughout the film where a woman's bare feet is full on, front and center, just gratuitous on the screen multiple times. And you know, the viewer for the most part thinks nothing of it because feet, unless you're into them, are pretty low on the erogenous meter or, you know, any sort of meter that elicits a response. But I, <laughs> I guess I'm scared, guys. I just, this is scaring me, guys. This is frightening me. I mean, I, you can't help but put two and two together and the equation is what if Mr. King is really into scat stuff like what if potentially there's that's a thing for him and I I don't I just don't want to think about it simply because I'm I'm a little human I'm not perfect I'm limited to my own weaknesses and judgments you know I'm not as tolerant as I could be when it comes to certain things involving distaste and disgust and especially when my gag reflex gets activated therefore I'm afraid of this guys because I keep seeing this recurring pattern and it's made my thoughts wander into the why is he always writing about this? Why is this particular subject so prominent in his work? Why, why, why? Why, 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 guys? So, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm so curious. And at the same time, I don't want to know because I'm afraid I may already know the answer and that makes me freak out a little. It does, just a little. But uh, yeah, there's a little bit of freak out there because, again, I don't want to go there with my human brain limitations. I do not, repeat, do not want to yuck anyone's yum, but I'm so concerned about this, guys. And in this collection, in the Bizarre of Bad Dreams, it became very apparent that this is a pressing matter. <laughs> This is this is a thing guys. This is a topic that I feel is valid. It is of great importance. It should be discussed more. Just like, you know, so many uh, King enthusiasts and fans, we talk about all kinds of themes and patterns in his work, uh, King and psychic children, King and women, you know, there's a million different things we can... <laughs> But we gotta talk about this, guys, and it's pressing enough where I had to deviate really far from my usual programming and mention my observations to you and see what your ideas are about this very off-putting subject. Um, or if you've, 
If you've noticed it previously, or maybe you haven't noticed it quite yet, or if you have a hypothesis yourself. So uh, this, is a, this is a subject where I definitely want to hear from you guys. Please write in and let me know your thoughts on this and tell me if you'd like to share um, what y your uh, imaginings are or your ponderings. I'm in the sharing mood when it comes to the heavily emphasized descriptions of bowel movements in the world of kings. So... I want to hear from you guys, so write in, let me know what you think. But finally, all right, folks, let's move forward. Uh, so in our next section, I'm going to talk about some of the standout bright stars from these first 10 stories. I'm also going to read some killer quotes for you guys to hopefully get some Pavlovian, Pavlovian responses out there. So thank you guys so much for sticking with me, and I'll see you in the next section. Hello friends and thanks for hanging out with me as we admire the ripest apples from this most excellent short story orchard. In this section I'm going to talk about approximately three to five stellar example stories. If I don't get all five we'll split the section and finish them up but these are some of the most wonderful shining bright sparkling stars that that grabbed at my heart this second read through they all channel I feel very well the doom avalanche and the nightmare so with these first 10 stories I definitely wanted to kick off the dive with two of the most theatrical and highly decorated narratives that are for me really paralleling each other a little bit at least when I think about them and put them next to each other side by side um, in my uh, post read reflection so the first one is the 43 page story called Mile 81 that was released as a separate ebook in 2011. And this story is actually the first one we have, and it kicks off the collection, and the one King himself alludes to being very reminiscent of Christine. Now exactly how Christine-esque it is, I am unsure, as I haven't read Christine yet. Please don't tar and feather me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, uh, the second story I'm putting right next to um, is to Mile 81 is the 59 page story called Ur, which is also um, a separate ebook released in 2009 to highlight the Amazon Kindle and also give a nod to the Dark Tower, which, oh my gosh, I can't tell you how glad I was that I uh, finally got a little bit of education recently uh, with not only my first read through of The Gunslinger last month, but also uh, having read the, the Low Men in Yellow Coats 
which is, oh my god, the most gorgeous, deeply moving lead story of the Hearts in Atlantis story collection. So I read both of those uh, late last year. So glad I did because they are definitely assisting my love of these little dark tower morsels I'm finding in King's work. So these two stories are within the first 10 we have in the Bazaar of Bad Dreams. And I found them really needy, guys. They're very decorated. And I think these are the ones that King really winks a little bit and he's rolling up his sleeves and providing some of his very uh, special, very unique genre cuisine for us, if you will. So once more, uh, I have to come back to my uh, shame and humiliation. I have not read Christine yet, guys. I want to. I plan to. But aside from the fact that it's a story that involves a car that is alive, um, I, at least I'm pretty sure that's, you know, the, the basis of what Christine is. Um, but with Mile 81, I think that King is once again channeling two haunted car concepts, I think. Um, granted, once more, having not read Christine, I'm kind of doing a little bit of guesswork here. Um, but I do want to talk about Mile 81, and you guys who have read Christine can kind of let me know if I'm warm with this one. But without providing too many spoilerific details on Mile 81, um, we have a station wagon that is covered in mud. And this thing is very sinister, guys. It's creepy. It completely defies physics. And this is a ravenous monster car. And for me as the reader, I feel it channels the alien quality, most definitely alien. And uh, from what I know about the infamous, iconic, is it a 1958 red Plymouth Fury? Oh, I'm so nervous about that one. I think it's 58. Of course it's 58. It should be 58 because the Losers Club, our precious novel, it takes place in Derry in 1958. 58 is a is a big king year, so I think it's 58. Uh, I'm second guessing myself, but please don't kill me if I screwed that up. Um, I'm apologizing in advance, but from what I gather about Christine, guys, she's she's always looking good. Like, Christine is always looking shiny and spiffy. And so what I don't know about Christine is if she is an alien or is she just evil. So anyway, we're not going to play, I'm not going to play too long on that court because I'm really ill-equipped to hang uh, with anything Christine related, but Mile 81 feels simultaneously vintage while also fresh. And um, I liked it, guys. I, I didn't love it, but I liked it a lot because I feel King does a great job of tiptoeing around the, the silliness aspect. I think there's a little bit of that, just a tiny bit, where as the reader, you're like, really? A car and it's eating people and it's maybe an alien you know there's a little bit of the silliness quotient there but he navigates it really well so it doesn't really linger in your mind too much um, but what's awesome is we have really interesting character interactions um, we have some really good one-offs the whole execution is fun 
and a little spooky and it also starts off with a really cool young preteen boy protagonist which we all know King and his uh, writing of adolescence is tremendous but when I first uh, read this book a few years back, I had the audiobook in addition to my hard copy. And uh, I remember I was on a road trip and I had my brother and his girlfriend uh, in the same car with me and I was playing it. And both of them had never read King before. So this was the first story they were ever hearing from Stephen King. And I was really nervous that the, the slight cheesiness of the premise would ruin it a little bit for them and they were just gonna like roll their eyes at me um but they didn't uh it totally worked they were into it they laughed at the right parts they felt very suspicious at the right moments and that was several years ago of course and to this day my brother oftentimes he reminds me about this particular king collection and he asked me he's like what's that one about the car and it eats people so i i do think mile 81 stands on its own a bit guys um and so my only gripe my only gripe aside from like the slight cheesiness but again once more it's so well done that it doesn't linger in your mind for long my only thing is I kind of wish it wasn't the very first story in our collection guys I concerning juxtaposition I feel other stories would have been or should have been prioritized first um, and then let my lady one and it's kind of juggernaut all kinds of king tropes within uh i i wish that would have been a little bit later on in in the collection and that some of the more literary king punches we have within this collection could have been first and this is just because as i mentioned in the last section guys i really believe this is an absolutely awesome assortment for new king readers guys and i can't help but always channel the many lit snobs in my life guys there's quite a few uh you you pick up a lot <laughs> in handfuls when you go to grad school uh together but i i know i bet all the money in my purse right now that if they were to pick up the bizarre of bad dreams and read mile 81 first they would walk out of the theater on the first course i just know they would and they would absolutely just balk at a terrible alien station wagon that devours roadside travelers and uh for them i feel it would be pulp with a capital p and i just know they would look at me and say uh go fish kimsey and then they're lost to king again and i will be sad uh, but yet i will walk on to fight another day but uh, so coming up in the next episode, I'll talk about which story I think would have been an awesome intro to the collection. I have some thoughts, but I really wish Mile 81 would have been a little bit further down, guys, just a bit, but it's still really enjoyable. It's charming, beguiling. It's got that vintage vibe. So if you are a fan of like 80s horror king, let's do this. Let's do Mile 81. It's mysterious. And then of course, that really young, 
mischievous protagonist I told you about. He's on his, his little two-wheeler causing trouble and trying to burn ants with a magnifying glass. Like, what's not to love? There's, there's a lot to love in Mile 81. So, uh, thumbs up, but I do wish it was a little further down the count story-wise. Now, er, <laughs> and I do believe it's er rather than you are, because I think we, it's, it's definitely not an acronym, I'm pretty sure, so it's er, but first of all, guys, I must say, I think I may have forgotten to mention this in my gunslinger episode, but if you listen to the podcast at all, you know your hostess with the mostest. Uh, I really love to highlight biblical allusions found in King's work because I received my minor in religious studies and I loved, I loved the program. I really wish I would have double majored. I deeply regret it. Um, but I think connecting King's work to deep lore and inspirations kind of makes the text more layered and rich and worth picking apart and it just gives it a little extra flavor I think and helps us maybe imagine or connect more dots um, all the good stuff so the Dark Tower fans are a plenty, of course, um, but did you guys know, I know I have not really heard this from other Dark Tower fans, which is why I'm mentioning it now, so Gilead, I, you guys know that that's Roland's home turf, but Gilead, guys, super ancient biblical land where the 12 tribes of Israel kind of had some origin roots kind of. If there's any um, Judaic scholars out there, uh, again, once more, don't stab me in the, the, the stomach because I'm, I might be uh, completely getting that wrong. But in my research, Gilead, super duper ancient biblical uh, location with uh, connections to the ancient 12 tribes. However, right next to Gilead, er, guys, er. So the actual word er is once more an ancient land where Abraham, that guy, the father of the big three, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, those three, Ur is the land of Abraham. So I guess King is potentially, don't know for sure, perhaps playing with ancient earth time when it comes to Dark Tower lore, which connecting it to this potential, oh, I'm, I'm a little fudgy on how old the Hebrew calendar is, eight to 10,000 year old calendar. Um, historically, Hebrewness going on there, that's pretty intriguing, my guys. And not gonna lie, uh, in my first read through of The Gunslinger, as you guys heard, heard, I found Old Testament stuff everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Totally loved it. So I love connecting these dots, even if they really don't go anywhere or they might be reaching. Um, I, I love it and I'm on board. So Ur, guys, is the land of Abraham. So let's keep that in mind uh, when you read the story. Um, perhaps it might deepen uh, some Dark Tower connections that I'm not even aware yet. I'm really not sure. But I can tell you, I can't wait to find out more. And Drawing of the Three, ladies and gentlemen, is coming up here in the next couple weeks. So stay tuned for my coverage on that. But Ur was a lot of fun, my guys, and very educational in terms of Dark Tower lore. And granted, 
with only one book in, I still don't know a lot about a lot of stuff in the Dark Tower, um, but I'm making connections and uh, that's the good part. But what was really fun about this narrative, guys, is not only do we have a device that connects us to that world, this random hot pink Kindle mailed to the main narrator, Wesley, by mistake. It was mailed to his Earth in his time, his own Jeff Bezos-owned empire. <laughs> but we have, in addition to all the little Dark Tower nuggets I was happy to read in Ur, we have allusions to the stellar 1122-63 novel, which I wasn't expecting. So swoon there, absolutely adore. I can't get enough of that novel, so I was thrilled to see it there. And then in addition to that, we also have some American literature insertions as King talks about Hemingway and what it would be like if all of a sudden he didn't die when he did and there were more published works out there, which, uh, small side note, I'm not a Hemingway fan at all, so I would not give a rat's ass. <laughs> I would not care um, if there were, uh, you know, unpublished or newly published Hemingway things. Um, however, I probably should have followed sweet, precious uh, Bambi character Thumper rule about that one and not really say anything um, <laughs> mean against Mr. Hemingway. My apologies to any Hemingway fans out there. I just have a bone to pick with Ernest over the years. Um, but I do respect Hemingway's writing style quite a bit. I also respect the people who love him and his uh, narrative output. But ergo, I'm going off on a tangent, what I loved is that King gave life to this very, very cool concept of an author having a second, third, or fourth writing existence in other times. And it's just oh, so grand. It's absolutely imagination paradise. And that's what makes Ur so enjoyable. And yes, I, I agree with a lot of mudslingers that, you know, the Amazon marketing isn't ideal for us, you know, nonconformists out there. But I don't know, guys. Are, are Kindles still hot? Are those a thing? Because I really feel like I haven't felt any powerful reverberations from Kindle in a while, or e-readers in general for that matter. I, I believe these days, uh, I think lately we're all audiophiles for the most part, right? I mean, audiobooks are where the real sex is at <laughs> these days, at least I think. That's my hypothesis. I actually never owned an e-reader uh, because I'm really old school and I love my hardcovers. Um, but I'm pretty sure I'm, yeah, I'm actually very sure that I must have one of these Christmases asked Santa for one and he did not deliver for me. And in retrospect, I think that's kind of okay. That's, that's a good thing now that I think about it. But I was excited that Ur really gained momentum and, uh, 
I, I really enjoyed uh, reading it and I loved the connections that I was able to make this time around that I have a small idea of what the hell's going on. Um, but we did have some low men show up in the story and I was thrilled because it's like, oh my god, I know those guys. So uh, I felt more connected to some of the names I've heard dropped recently, which felt really good. But I do celebrate together Mile 81 and Ur in these first 10 stories as I feel these two are perhaps some of the most bombastic in terms of genre king serving us a very layered sandwich of lots of fun writing. And these two are, for me as the reader, very similar in their wild, very off-the-walls executions. And when I think of them, I if when I think of them both together, I really do think they both channel the nightmare pretty good. So My Lady One gets to the scares a little sooner than Ur does, but when Ur is ramped up, we do have that reader drop where it gets a little creepy and all of a sudden that pink Kindle is just the worst thing in the world. So uh, definitely channeling the nightmare for me. Um, very nightmarishly strong, both of those stories, Ur and My Lady One. So now that we've got our really big dessert stories out of the way, I must, can't wait to segue and talk about this little 13-pager in here, guys. Oh my god, this, this, oh my god, guys, this story captured my heart and soul. So the one I'm talking about is called A Death. And this is 13 pages. I'm going to keep saying that over and over again, mostly because I'm astonished at how brief it is and how powerful. So I uh, am so obsessed with this story. I can't stop thinking about it. And uh, King pretty much captured me from moment one. So I want to read you the foreword to this story to kind of introduce what a little powerhouse he this is. So King writes, in the hair of Harold Rue, probably the best novel about writing ever published, Thomas Williams offers, offers a striking metaphor, maybe even a parable, for how a story is born. He envisions a dark plain with a small fire burning on it. One by one, people come out of the dark to warm themselves. Each one brings a little fuel, and eventually the small fire becomes a blaze with the characters standing around it, their faces brightly lit and each beautiful in its own way. One night, as I lay drifting towards sleep, I saw a very small fire, a kerosene lantern, in fact, with a man trying to read a newspaper by its light. Other men came with their own lanterns, casting more light on a dreary landscape that turned out to be the Dakota Territory. I have visions like this frequently, although it makes me uneasy to admit it. I don't always tell the stories that go with them. Sometimes the fire goes out. This one had to be told, because I knew exactly what kind of language I wanted to use, dry and laconic, not like my usual kind of language, or pardon me, <laughs> not like my usual style at all. I had no idea where the story was going, but I felt perfectly confident that the language would take me there, and it did. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. <sighs> okay, my friends, I'm so in love with this tiny short story, mostly because with an intro like that, I mean, it's already teaching. King is already taking us to school. Like, we are already learning so much. And I, guys, I think I'm going to put this in my curriculum. I That's how much I love this story. I think I'm going to pluck it. I'm going to make a PDF for my students because, wow, I'm just, I'm, I'm into it. And uh, what is, what is, accomplished guys in 13 pages for me is completely astonishing and more than that the reader experience is incredible because as the reader you are super duper tricked from moment one and I don't really know how King did that because at the very end I at the very end I couldn't help but feel a little breathless because I, when you look back at how the narration was constructed and able to influence reader perspective in such a strong way, I got duped. I assumed I knew the truth. But I did not. I did not, guys. And this one is so small, but so mighty, and it made such a strong impact on me, guys. And I think it's because the whole thing operates like a magic trick. And in the final twist, I'm just there with my mouth open, wondering how, how, how did it make such an impact? But Totally, guys. This story, it feels like a magic trick that you don't see coming. And I think I also love it because it's one of the only narratives in this collection that has historical fiction roots. Because uh, you as the reader are transported to, I, I'm not 100%, but I'm guessing like either 1870s to 1890s Nebraska. Super small town totally desolate. It's winter, so very cold and dark. And King inserts these characters around the fire he spoke of. And man, 13 pages, guys, 13 pages. And yet I'm still thinking about it. I, I was thinking about it days after I read it. I was thinking about it days after I finished the collection. I, I'm just so in awe. So, and uh, also, I think I, I'm also really in love with it, as I may have mentioned earlier in my Gunslinger episode. I really love Westerns, guys, like so very much. Um, Westerns, uh, are very close to my heart, mostly because the actual Western landscape um, in the uh, American Southwest is something I was born into. So it's definitely in my bloodline and my life story. And we have cowboy all over this, this little wonderful slice. And it makes me so, so happy. I'm also inclined to think that Steve also likes um, Westerns as well, as I've seen him gravitate to them in, in a lot of his work, even if it's just a, an author protagonist writing about Westerns, which I think I've seen the most. But just a hunch of mine, and maybe you have it too, but let me give you a taste of this one, guys. This is on page 143 in the American hardcover, and I totally love it. I'm going to get my ducks in a row here. Truesdale stayed in the cell for a week, eating grub from mother's best, sleeping on the bunk, shitting and pissing in the bucket, which was emptied every two days. 
His father didn't come to see him because his father had gone foolish in his 80s and in his 90s was being cared for by a couple of squaws, one Sioux and the other Lakota. Sometimes they stood on the porch of the deserted bunkhouse and sang hymns in harmony. His brother was in Nevada hunting for silver. Sometimes children came and stood in the alley outside his cell chanting, Hangman, hangman, come on down. Sometimes men stood out there and threatened to cut off his privates. Once Rebecca Klein's mother came and said she would hang him herself were she allowed. How could you kill my baby? she asked through the barred window. She was only ten years old and twas her birthday. Ma'am, Truesdale said, standing on the bunk so he could look down at her white upturned face. I didn't kill your baby, nor no one. Black liar, she said, and went away. Almost everyone in town attended the child's funeral. The squaws went, even the two whores who plied their trade and the chuckaluck went. Truesdale heard the singing from his cell as he squatted over the bucket in the corner. Doesn't that, as the kids say, absolutely slap? It slaps, guys. It's just winning. Ah! Please read this story, guys. Tell me what you think. I'm smitten for it. Smitten. Smitten for the king's sleight of hand. I can't wait for you guys to reach the end. Everything about the narrative style, the pacing, the details, the reveal, the setting, the description. A-D-O-R-E. That's how I feel about that one, guys. I'm obsessed. Obsessed. All right, my gems, let's take a short breather and talk about a few more stories before we say farewell to these first 10 within the Bazaar of Bad Dreams. I'll see you in the next section. Thank you, thank you for sticking with me as I nerd out to some Stephen King short stories within the Bazaar of Bad Dreams. I have a few more to gush over before we say farewell to this first part, this these first 10 stories, and get ourselves pumped up for the second 10 stories on their way up for next time. So I want to talk about a 30-pager in here called morality. And this one is not quite a literal deal with the devil narrative, which I'm totally pro. I love deal with the devil narratives, and we have a few really good ones in King's work. So I wouldn't call this a deal with the devil narrative, but I would call it a deal with a devil narrative. Um, And what's really cool about this one, guys, is not only does it epically channel the doom avalanche really well, but the devil in question is not potentially really even a devil, but kind of someone who has, for the most part, lived a good, moral, wholesome, charitable, pious life, uh, completely directed and driven by morality, uh, his entire, his or her, I should say, 
well, I'm gonna read a giant chunk, so it is a he, but um, it, his entire life, uh, he has been a good man, and yet in the, these final years, something crazy, guys, and he decides to cruise the gutter of human evil for what seems to the reader like research, which is so interesting to me, guys. It's so uh, strange. It's villainous, but at the same time, it's strangely academic and curious, and uh, the whole thing is really not black and white. So I concerning the antagonist of the story, I enjoy it. I really like it. And this is another one like a death that had me super duper thinking a lot after I read it. Not as much as a death, but pretty close. So with morality, the pieces that we have leading up to the main action it all seems pretty innocent, albeit very mysterious, but it, you know, it, it sounds like, okay, something's, something's going to go down. Um, and then, you know, the, the rising action, you're like, all right, what's going on? But then the domino effect in play, guys, and that's where we get that doom avalanche. The unraveling that King does so well is coming across very strong. So in morality, we have an average married couple tempted by money and they are tempted to do something kind of odd and um it's kind of a crime kind of not they have to film it and once they do they get the money no fuss no muss but after it's done is where the real story begins and of course it's just that little kick of the snowball down the hill and uh it's it's a story that kind of is rooted in sort of the ancient allegory or parable where a simple act of deviance or harm towards another has a giant ripple effect. And uh, very intriguing and very well written here. So I do not want to give it away, um, too much of it away, uh, but the thing that I compared it to when I first read it I don't know if this is a Catholic thing, forgive me if I'm butchering the tale of it, but I, I don't know where I heard this, but the example I'm going to provide, I feel like it came from some sort of uh, catechism thing of some kind, but um, what I remember the way it was told to me is a man was asking a priest, he says, Father, what is the worst sin? Uh, surely it's wrath or maybe lust. And the priest says, why do you feel that, my son? And he says, well, because one could get very easily carried away and just, you know, accidentally or not so accidentally murder someone or perhaps consumed in the moment and go from lust to rape to greater violence, etc. if one was tempted. And the priest says, no, my son, the greatest sin is a gluttony, specifically drunkenness. And the guy says, uh, Father, how can it be gluttony that uh, is like, being drunk, you can't even move. You're you're so out of it. You're just you're just happy and and you know silly and how no how can that be the worst sin? 
And so the priest says, once there was a drunken man who was so far gone with drink that on his way home, he completely forgot who he was, thought he was being robbed and murdered his father and raped his mother all because of drunkenness, which is, you know, an absolutely horrifying story, uh, a little um, allegory, if you will. But the point is that the point of it is that a seemingly innocent sin or the not so bad thing to do is actually the worst choice of them all because of what it can lead to. So this snowball effect, uh, aka the doom avalanche, is in full form here, guys, and it's worth the read because when you get to the end and you see what was lost... Yeah, I was really impressed with how it affected me. So I want to read you this chunk. I enjoyed it immensely. And this is some awesomely mysterious setup King gives us. This is on page 176 in the American hardcover. The next day in Winnie's study. Well, he said. Her mother had never been a churchgoer, but Nora had attended vacation Bible school every summer and had enjoyed it. There were games and songs and flannel board stories. She found herself remembering one of the stories now. She hadn't thought of it in years. I wouldn't have to really hurt the, you know, the person to get the money, she said. I want to be very clear about that. No, but I expect to see blood flow. Let me be clear about that. I want you to use your fist, but a cut lip or bloody nose will be quite sufficient. In one VBS story, the teacher put a mountain on the flannel board, then Jesus and a guy with horns. The teacher said the devil had taken Jesus up on top of a mountain and showed him all the cities of the earth. You can have everything in those cities, the devil had said, every treasure, all you have to do is fall down and worship me. But Jesus was a stand-up guy. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Well, he asked again. Sin, she mused, that's what's on your mind. Sin for its own sake, deliberately planned and executed. Do you find the idea exciting? No, she said, looking up at the frowning bookshelves. Winnie let some time pass. Then he said for the third time, Well, if I got caught, would I still get the money? If you lived up to your part of the agreement and didn't implicate me, of course, you certainly would. And even if you were caught, the very worst to come of it would be probation, plus court-ordered psychiatric evaluation, she said, which I probably need for even considering this. Winnie said, if you continue the way you are, dear, you'll need a marriage counselor at the very least. In my time in the ministry, I counseled many partners, and while money worries weren't always the root of their problems, that's what it was in most cases, and that's all it was. Thank you for the benefit of your experience, Winnie. He said nothing to this. You're crazy, you know? He still said nothing. She looked at the book some more. Most of them were on religion. Finally, she took, turned her eyes back to his. If I do this, and you fuck me, I'll make you sorry. He showed no discomfiture at her choice of language. I'll honor my commitment. You may be sure of that. 
Love it! So intriguing, so multi-layered, and when you actually read about the crime, guys, I want to give it away to you so bad, but I'm not gonna because I want you to read this story. When you read about the crime, as the reader, you're like, what? It, it's a head scratcher, guys. It's a head scratcher. And I think this story is really good for discussions. I think definitely read this with someone else and get to chatting about it because I liked it a lot. There is a lot of good stuff with morality. So I wanted to share that chunk with you guys. All right, so the last story I want to mention in these first 10, I was going to mention The Dune to you, but The Dune is another super duper short one. I love that one too. I want you guys to read that one on your own. Um, but this last one is another epic. This one is 40 pages long and is called Bad Little Kid. And this one has a pretty decent large passing of time which is handled really well and this one is about an absolute vile little boy who is freakishly adult in his kiddishness he is um yeah even though i i mentioned this one i categorize it as a doom avalancher there's something very nightmare about it too we it might be a contender for for uh, both awards but there is something really terrible and evil uh, in this small package of uh, this little person in this story, guys. And, uh, you know, I, I'm i not a horror expert, but I have seen a lot of the um, archetypes where the devil's child or Damien or Rosemary's baby, where the tiny package can pack a terrifying punch. And um, the thing within this story is not innocent nor sweet but incredibly diabolical and very frightening and uh what's gross about it is king really makes him distasteful and he kind of describes him in a way that at least for me as the reader i felt my whole body like cringing i just wanted to get away from this very menacing frightening uh Ugh, monstrous little child in quotes little child um king describes him as greasy and he's got a grating voice and a just a terrible maniacal laugh that just resonates and it's haunting it's menacing and haunting so bad little kid is really rich in details as i mentioned the passing of time is handled really well i think we probably go about 30 to 40 years um, throughout the span of the story, which is awesome to see. But it really is a, a great showcase of a seemingly immortal little evil brat, which is kind of vintage, it's kind of old school uh, kind of premise. But it it's also uh, a little bit more than that because you're like, is you as the reader, it's like, okay, is this a real evil little child or is this the potential madness of our main character so you kind of wrestle with that um for the first 30 or so pages i would say uh and this little evil menacing presence keeps popping up and ruining our main narrator's life like throughout his entire life in these pivotal pivotal what am I? Pivot, pivotal, not pivotal. Oh my goodness, guys. Oh my goodness. Okay, let's get 
let's get it together pivotal um in the pivotal moments of our main narrator this little child is ruining his life and and it's very sad and shocking and uh, at the same time you don't know if he's even real and that's not necessarily a spoiler but i i just uh i will share that so super well written and on top of that in the midst of all the evil little boy stuff we've got prison we've got a death row framing to the story and as i've mentioned with a few of my guests who i've talked to recently i'm so excited to read green mile down the road and uh but i have read uh rita hayworth and the shawshank redemption and so i i think that most king readers when we realize we are in a prison we uh when we when we're in the presence of bars clanging all of a sudden it's a little bit more dialed in and tuned in reader experience because I think we are gearing up for a more richer, more intense examination. And we do get a little bit of that here, for sure. So, uh, Bad Little Kid has a lot of good stuff in it, guys. And the ending of this one does feel pretty nostalgic. It feels pretty predictable, but I'm okay with it. I'm really okay. I think it works because I think King does enough twisting where the reader is sort of 50-50 on is it madness or is it real. And so I, I liked that. I felt pretty teased the whole time uh, and I really just loved all the sumptuous character details we have. And the final narrative turn is welcome most definitely. So this is a chunk I like from page 129 in the American hardcover that I wanted to share with you guys. McGregor took Bradley's client back into the bowels of Needle Manor for the midday count, promising to bring him back afterward. I'll bring you some soup and a sandwich if you want it, McGregor told Bradley. You must be hungry. Bradley wasn't, not after all that. He sat waiting on his side of the plexiglass partition, hands folded on his blank legal pad. He was meditating on the ruination of lives. Of the two under constant consideration, the demolition of Hallis was easier to accept because the man was clearly mad. If he had taken the stand at his trial and told this story, and in the same reasonable, how could you possibly doubt me tone of voice, Bradley felt sure Hallis would now be in one of the state's two maximum security mental institutions instead of awaiting sequential injections of sodium theopental, pancuronium bromide, and potassium chloride, the lethal cocktail needle manner inmates called Goodnight Mother. But Hallis, most likely pushed over the edge of sanity by the loss of his own child, had gotten at least half a life. It had clearly been an unhappy one, beset by paranoid fantasies and delusions of persecution, but to bend an old aphorism, half a life was better than none. The little boy was a far sadder case. According to the state medical examiner, the child, who had just happened to be on Barnum Boulevard at the wrong time, had been no more than eight, and probably closer to six or seven. That wasn't a life, it was a prologue. 
All right, my dears, that was just a tiny little spoonful, a tiny teaspoon of intrigue that I hope inspires you to check out Bad Little Kid. So my dears, that is about all I wanted to discuss with you guys in terms of these first 10. Uh, I know that I did leave off uh, the other five or the other four, of course, um, but uh, it would be like a five hour episode if I um, absolutely don't in as deeply as I wanted with all of them, but I cannot wait, friends, cannot to start the next 10 stories in this collection, which will be our next second part episode, because, oh, my friends, we have some rock-solid gemstones in the later half. Yes, we do. Does King start to cook with gas? So next episode, we're going to take a look at the incredible, incredible story called Her and Woke is still alive, which I believe King wrote for either The Atlantic or The New Yorker, and it's just fire. I can't wait to read that one for you and talk about why I am in love with it. We also have a story called Under the Weather, which was a story featured in my favorite novella collection, Full Dark No Stars, the paperback version, which is why I understand why King collectors, uh, they really, they're onto something because there's buried treasure in various editions. So I'm going to get have to get my hands on that one for sure. But we also have the other uh, novella. Um, what was it, a novella? I think it was actually an ebook. I'm not sure. Not an ebook. What am I saying? Um, it's a standoff. It's a standalone story. Um, Blockade Billy. Remember that one, guys? We're going to talk about that one because I think people have some thoughts on that one. And I, reading it for the second time, am now a fan. So we're going to talk about that cannot wait. There's also a really cool World War II themed one called Tommy that I loved. And we've got some nursing home action coming up. We've got some gay men in nursing home coming up. We have more magic, more old school macabre, more old school horror, much, much more to discuss and appreciate. So thank you guys so very much for chilling out with me. I know that Stephen King short stories are kind of a hard sell sometimes. So if you hung out with me the entire time, mega props to you. I love you so much. And thank you for listening to my overflowing short story passion and love for Stephen's short story collections. So I hope, hope, hope you read a few of these titles I've discussed in this episode or get your hands on this volume, guys. Get your hands on this collection and please reach out to the show and tell me your thoughts. Feel free to contact us via the socials or write to us at underratedsk at gmail as I would love to know your thoughts regarding a few of these, specifically the five I talked about on this episode or six. Tell me about what you thought of the Dune. I love that one. So I'm having an absolute ball with this collection and I'm going to pick it and march and do whatever I must to get new readers and king readers to give this one a go. So please head to Apple Podcasts and give the show a five star if you haven't already and I will see you next time for the Bazaar of Bad Dreams part two. Bye-bye.